today on Against the Grain. How did the term gender take on the meaning that it has today? How was it developed as a social pairing to the purportedly fixed notion of sex? Surprisingly, historian Sandra Eder traces its origins to a pediatric endocrinology clinic at Johns Hopkins University in the 1940s. She discusses the significance of the introduction of the idea of a culturally constructed gender in the Cold War context of mid-20th century America and the inherited baggage of the term today. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. The notion of gender is one of the key political concepts of our time. It is a term that is and has been battled over, yet it'd be hard to imagine contemporary politics without it. The notion, as we understand it, however, has its origins in an unexpected place a mid-20th century pediatric endocrinology clinic where it was developed through medical practice as a socially constructed notion distinct from the biological category of sex. In her book, How the Clinic Made Gender, the Medical History of a Transformative Idea, published by the University of Chicago Press, Sandra Eder examines the complexity of the beginning of the sex-gender binary in the midst of shifting ideas of biology and culture, personality traits, and social engineering. Eder is Associate Professor of History at the University of California at Berkeley and the co-editor of Pink and Blue, Gender, Culture, and the Health of Children. She joins me today. Sandra, how were children assigned one sex or another before the Hopkins Pediatric Endocrinology Clinic formulated the concept of gender in the 1940s. So it's important to note here that um, this uh, is a question that only comes into play, that only becomes important when uh, clinicians, uh, clinicians, researchers, physicians or families come upon children whose sex is doubted or appears to be um, quote-unquote ambiguous or unclear. Right, we're talking about a specific group of children here, children with intersex traits. And so there's been long time uh, debates in the decades before the 1940s, what's the, what's the true sex? How do you determine the true sex of children? How do you figure out if you have uh, a bunch of biological characteristics, uh, sex characteristics that keep expanding and changing over time, which one is the one that determines true sex? Like, is it, is it, is it sex chromosomes? Is it hormones? Is it um, external genitals? Is it uh, internal reproductive systems? So each of these, uh, in children with intersex traits, um, uh, each of these category might not quite fit nicely onto the other. And so for a long time, physicians said, well, true sex is in the gonads. So whether you have ovaries or testes, that's what decides uh, what uh, a person's sex is. And we go with that. There are limitations, of course, initially, it's not that easy 
just in, in terms of medical technology and techniques and uh, the riskiness of procedure to uh, open, you know, do a laparoscopy and look um, for, you know, just check. Uh, how uh, uh, and and it's risky, of course. And then the so there are, there are all kinds of assumptions that go into this uh, model, and it uh, reflects a binary that's neither reflected in nature nor in society. And so one of the things that clinicians struggle with in these decades before the 1940s is as sex categories expand and um, they start thinking about sex chromosomes, they really wonder, uh, you know, which category trumps the other. And so that's that's kind of the conflict uh, uh, before the 1940s. And then, so in a way, because sex and gender is not separated and are thought to be deeply connected and one, if you if a child um, if a patient comes to a doctor, uh, often they're um, already um, uh, teenagers or grown-ups, and uh, they discover that the sex they live in, the social sex, is not the sex that matches their uh, gonadal setup. There is often, had been, a recommendation would have actually been to change that person's sex, even so the person has uh, convincingly and happily lived in another sex that doesn't match this biological characteristics. So would it then be fair to say that up until that point, the focus was on determining sex based on anatomical or biological uh, indicators rather than something else. Yes, and that would be definitely the <laughs> the short answer to that. Uh, but I, um, it's also important that uh, doctors do look at behavior as well, right? And do look how behavior, uh, but they interpret behavior through anatomical characteristics, right? So if somebody. Uh, uh, behaves in a certain way, they think it's an output of their hormones. It's, a, it's something that's caused by uh, anatomical, biological characteristics. Tell us about the Johns Hopkins Pediatric Endocrinology Clinic. Um, and, and perhaps you can tell us about the importance of Johns Hopkins as a medical institution as well. So Johns Hopkins, the Johns Hopkins um, Hospital Medical School is founded in the late 19th century as one of the first uh, uh, medical institutions based on the emergence of modern medicine, the kind of biomedicine that combines laboratory knowledge with the perspective of empirical bedside uh, practices and clinicians' researchers' uh, interests. So it's based on this like really modern concept, on the reform concept of medical education and medical practice, and is uh, considered one of the leading institutions in terms of medical research, medical education uh, at the time and beyond. It's a model for other places. And so it's a place where uh, innovation takes place. Uh, an early uh, example for that is that the Harriet Lane Home, which is the uh, adjacent children's hospital on the Hopkins campus, um, that was founded at the beginning of the 20th century is really a place where clinics introduce like a focus on specific disease that allow research and uh, treatment go hand in hand. Tell us about who Lawson Wilkins was. So Lawson Wilkins is a really uh, interesting figure in the history of medicine and in this history. 
He's a private pediatrician who was trained at Hopkins and then opened up a, a, a practice in Baltimore uh, and worked there for around 30, 35 years. And uh, very late in his life, he is uh, chosen uh, by to be the director of the first pediatric endocrinology clinic at the Harriet Lone Home at Johns Hopkins Hospital. And it's really interesting because in a way he becomes the father of the field. He opens up a clinic at a time where there isn't really pediatric endocrinology. There's no specific uh, way in which you can be trained. So he really shapes a whole generation of um, uh, physicians, pediatric endocrinologists that come after him. He creates his fellow system, he has a laboratory, he's really committed to scientific medicine, and he becomes this interesting um, kind of founding figure for the, uh, for the specialty. Um, he's also not really interested in, uh, in sex or in se sexology or questions of sex. It's something that he kind of in a way stumbles upon through his interaction with children with specific uh, conditions. Yeah, so tell us about congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which is one of the conditions which the children who are sent to his clinic are diagnosed with. Congenital adrenal hyperplasia, or CAH short, is uh, an inborn hyperplasia of the adrenal glands. And what it causes is a lack of um, cortisol and an overproduction of androgen or precursor to androgen. And this can cause, often cause in the severe form of the condition, life-threatening metabolic imbalances in infants. So infants would not be able to uh, experience salt loss, loss, would not be able to uh, regulate the metabolism, and in the severe cases um, might pass away. Um, the condition also, because of that overproduction of the precursor of androgen often results in what they call uh, male-appearing genitalia in newborn children with double X chromosomes. So even those uh, where the metabolic effects were not so severe. So in a way, it affects the whole body, uh, but its sexual effects such as precocity in all afflicted children or what they call virilization and male-appearing genitals in children with double X chromosomes are the most noticeable in those cases that are not severe. And what happens is that these uh, children, specifically girls, uh, often look quote-unquote male. And as they grow up, because that uh, overexposure of androgen continues, they have a male appearance, as the doctors say. They look male, their genitalia looks male. And actually before, in an early phase, when they really weren't, um, wasn't such a focus on the condition, they were often at uh, birth uh, thought to be boys and assigned uh, the male sex and raised as boys. Yeah, so I wonder if you could give us an example of one of the cases, since these cases were written up and documented. Um, one of the children that came into the clinic and the way that this clinic grappled with a different approach to assigning the sex of the child. So typically, initially, when Lawson Bilkin starts first getting interested in this condition, he comes across baby, babies that are brought um, to the clinic uh, when they're really young because they are wasting away, they're not eating well, they're throwing up, and they're vomiting. And those can be uh, chromosomally boys or girls. 
And so uh, in the case of Mary, for example, she comes in, she's really dehydrated, she can't keep the food in, and the parents are exceedingly worried. And what happens is that Wilkins kind of diagnoses here, but there's no treatment available. And because it's the severe form of the condition, he's focused on the life-threatening conditions. And so they do surgery where they uh, um, operate on the adrenal gland and take out part of it. But uh, at, the st at the time, that child uh, cannot really survive and then passes away. And it's tragic for the parents and it's tragic uh, for the doctors who see this kind of drastic treatment as a last resort. The other thing that happens, the other case that happens would be the parents come in, as in the case is Charles, worried he's a bit sickly, can you have an, uh, can you look at our child? And in the course of that examination, Wilkins determines that this uh, boy, Charles, is actually a girl with double X chromosomes and CAH who has been um, assigned the male sex at birth and had been raised as a boy. And so the question arises then, so the first question with, the con with this specific condition is like, how can the child survive? And once that is kind of taken care of at first, like, in, uh, uh, especially when uh, Wilkins introduces cortisone, then he says, like, but how should the child live, right? So first, how can the child live? And then how should the child live? And at the time, the idea to live outside of really binary, circumscribed gender or gender roles is really unsinkable. So with Charles, this comes at a time where they're trying to make decisions, should we leave Charles in the sex that he was assigned at birth? Should he, should he continue living in the sex that he seems very well adjusted to? Or should we change the sex according to any biological truths? And this is where they introduce gender, and this is where gender comes in. This is when they start talking about um, uh, that his gender role is more important than his uh, chromosomal sex. So then, is this a new concept then, this of gender? Is this a word? that had been used in other contexts before. How did this clinic at Johns Hopkins deploy this word? So gender is actually a new term that they introduce in this time, right? I mean, of course, gender has been used to talk about grammar or in other contexts, but what happens in the 1950s is that uh, a team at Wilkins Clinic consisting of uh, psychologist John Money and psychiatrists couple Joan and John Hampson introduced this new term gender or gender role into this discussion to determine the right or the better sex for a child. So this is an important shift. This is kind of the beginning of this separation between sex and gender in terms of terminology. They do that, of course, because they are pursuing a study for Wilkins, who introduced a new treatment for CH children, and he wants to know what's the best way to go ahead. Should we assign the, the children as double X chromosomes who've been raised as boys? Should we reassign them as girls now that we have a treatment and we can stop the kind of uh, ongoing quote unquote virilization? Or should they, uh, so, or should we leave them in the male sex? How can they be happy? What's the psychological effect of all of this? So, in a way, the team at Hopkins needs to come up with a category. What are they actually measuring? If they're not measure, you know, if they're comparing anatomical features to the sex they're raised in, they're measuring something that they have to make tangible. And they come up with the term gender role to separate it uh, from anatomical sex and to separate it 
from the kind of social sex in which the child was raised. And gender role they define as how children perceive themselves and how they're perceived by others, uh, their behaviors, a whole mix of different things. It's not quite identity, it's very functional in a way, but it is uh, very close to our current understanding of gender role. And so they compare anatomical sex and uh, the social sex in which the child is living and saying, actually, uh, gender role uh, in most of these cases matches the social sex in which the child is raised regardless of um, any uh, anatomical features. And so that's the new, that's how they bring in gender role as a measurement uh, to make a clinical decision about what is the better sex to assign for the child. It's a move away from the search for true sex, the search for like which anatomical feature, which organ, which body part is the determining factor of sex, which is the correct one, but the kind of, but the move towards kind of a social functionality of sex, the sex that the child can live in, that uh, the child uh, identifies with, and that the child uh, will uh, grow up to become a kind of healthy, well-adjusted adult. So that's the idea, and that's why they bring in gender, and that's the innovation in this particular clinical setting. Historian Sandra Eder is my guest. We're discussing her book, How the Clinic Made Gender, the Medical History of a Transformative Idea. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So this move away from defining sex as something biological or anatomical, a move towards something that is more socially constructed or culturally formed, in many ways reflects a larger change that was going on in the mid 20th century in the United States. Can you tell us about that shift as well as the shift towards a kind of more psychologically rooted understanding of society that was embraced by the American public? In a typical man of a historian, I have to say, we have to go back a couple of decades to answer this question. Uh, but I'll be brief. So in a way, like the decades that lead up to the 1950s, there are two things that happen in American society and in the sciences, uh, specifically in the social sciences. One is kind of a movement in anthropology, at first uh, a specific branch of anthropology, the, culture, the School of Culture and Personality, uh, and that which extends soon to uh, uh, more of the social sciences to look at culture, environment, and society as determining factor for behavior and personality and um, kind of the way in which uh, societies understand themselves. And this comes, of course, by through observation of sexuality and gender roles in other cultures and anthropologists uh, claim and uh, that you know that our that culture determines it's not rooted the way we behave is not rooted in biology it's determined by culture that's why we find these vast differences across different uh, uh, regions of the world and it shouldn't be uh, each culture has its own value so it's kind of a cultural relativism and that applies not only to gender and sexuality but also to um, to race so the important debates that try to move away ways from this kind of uh, scientific uh, racialism and determination towards a focus on uh, environment and culture and history. So that's, and in a way, some historians have claimed that in the social sciences, that 
the decades that lead up to the 1950s, there's this idea to look at cultural patterns to understand behavior and the trump of culture over biology. At the same time, we also have this increasing interest in the, in the first couple of decades of the 20th century in psychology. Some people refer to a psychologization of American society. This idea that, you know, this is just like we uh, to pay that a lot of uh, things are explained or we have to look at our inner specific psychology to understand things. This has also to do with um, a shift in understanding of mental illness towards a uh, uh, a model of adjustment and maladjustment that uh, uh, m uh, mental problems are a sign of uh, individuals not being well adjusted to society, to, to society, to the environment, to the particular setting, and so these factors kind of come together uh, with an increasing group of experts, of psychologists and psychiatrists who get involved in medical practice or clinical practice, who are now also looking at patients uh, uh, with intersex traits and who are increasingly saying it's really important to, to take into account the psychology, the psychosexuality of the particular patients. What happens then at Hopkins is kind of this, uh, all these things are drawn together with a kind of a clinical pragmatism to find a solution, like a standardized treatment or solution approach to all these different cases of children with intersex traits. And then it produces this particular formulation of a learned gender role, a gender role that is learned in the course of, uh, uh, of growing up based on the norms that the child perceives in the environment that surrounds them. And I want to ask you more about that shift toward the social and the psychological, but just staying for a moment with the broad shifts that were going on within American society. Obviously, it was a very good thing that there was a movement away from biological determinism, and as you say, you know, which could be tied to eugenics and highly racist notions of who people are and why they are the way they are. But you note that the shift toward a focus on culture and social factors uh, shaping who someone becomes didn't necessarily come from a liberatory place. I wonder if you could situate things in the context of the Cold War. You're absolutely right. I think this move towards uh, culture and social and the social is not necessary. Uh, a liberatory move because it's still determined by agreed upon norms in society. And let me go a little bit into this to make this a little bit more tangible. So it's one of this kind of contradictions at heart, because from our perspective, if we look back at something, uh, you know, a claim like gender is learned, um, culture determines how we, how, how we live, uh, our sexuality, our sex roles, then, uh, then we would think that uh, gives people more freedom in terms of behavior and identity, but it doesn't because it's tied to specific norms and it's tied to this kind of social cultural context of the time. The social cultural context of the time is, of course, the Cold War. It starts a bit earlier and it's, it starts with a shift or a concern about the question is like, why did fascism arise in these uh, countries that were previously um, uh, democratic. And so one of the things that anthropologists do at the time, the same anthropologists who have studied different cultures, they now turn their gaze to explain how uh, these certain kind of uh, 
shifts towards totalitarianism happen in society. So there is um, a change in the approach to uh, culture as a determining factor in, um, in personality development. So during the Second World War and after, there's a concern to develop uh, democratic, in the sense of not fascist, not authoritarian, not communist, personality in American use. There's an increasing focus on raising children right as well-adjusted, kind of democratic, and of course democratic is here, like it's a specifically culturally defined notion of who can be a democratic citizen, who can participate. But there's this whole idea we need to raise our children right to make them into the democratic, well-adjusted, happy citizens for our future. So there are, you know, there's the mid-century White House conference on, on children. This is a concern. There's policies. There's psychologists. Everybody's talking about raising children right. But raising children right how, right? And so one of the things that happens that I think is really interesting and other scholars have pointed out as well is that there's a shift from you know, uh, from a kind of biological determinism to cultural determinism. So this idea that uh, certain things, certain norms are uh, important and need to be uh, embraced for uh, uh, a person to grow up to be well-adjusted. These norms are, of course, defined by what... Uh, any given society thinks is important at the time. And one of the things that both social and biological scientists find, uh, point out at the time is it's really important to have clearly circumscribed binary uh, sex roles. Uh, so it's really important that uh, even in the case of the study at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, uh, even if you kind of severe this com connection between anatomical sex and social sex, it still needs to be binary. It still needs to be clearly circumcised gender roles. It needs to be clear uh, who's the woman, who's the man. It needs to be clear uh, that they follow these uh, social norms of femininity and masculinity in order for the child to develop in an appropriate manner. And so in a way, it actually cements uh, social roles because gender is so normative in its emergence based on these cold war policies that see the, the nuclear family as the core of raising future citizens, that it really uh, does not offer anything beyond the sex binary between uh, male and female, masculinity and femininity in a very 1950s formulation. Indeed. What about the 1952 widely publicized case of Christine Jorgensen? who transitioned from male to female. Do you think that had an influence on how people were thinking around these questions of sex and gender? So I have a, I have a specific answer in terms of the clinic, and then I can talk a, bit, a little bit more widely or broadly about this topic. So initially in the 1950s, uh, because it's this kind of sensationalized case, it's seen as this exceptional case, it creates a lot of debates, it's kind of this curiosity. Uh, it has different effects on different communities. The clinicians researchers are really careful to point out the difference between the cases of the children with intersex traits, that they're 
tweeting and quote-unquote managing to what they call at the time transvestite, transsexuals. I mean, that term is just coming into use. It's, of course, now not appropriate anymore, or, or homosexuals. So it's a really important, in the sense, it's there are these interesting footnotes where they keep on pointing out, no, these are children. This is actually a biological problem that we're trying to save. This is a medical problem. We don't know about this other, but it's... So there's kind of like a attempt to... to uh, cast that part of the question off in order to give the the general hypothesis more respectability, if you may say. It's ironic in a way that the money, uh, a good not even twenty years later, is one of the first to uh, to initiate a gender identity clinic uh, at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. In broader society, I think the effect is uh, one of exceptionality and. Uh, sensationalized cases, but I think the debates are not about gender. So even Christine Jorgensen uh, in one interview says like, well, this is something, it's connected to some anatomic features, connected to my hormones, that's why I feel. So people are grappling with the meaning of trans at the time, and, uh, and clinicians are starting this new kind of parallel research program in which they're trying to determine, you know, where do these cases from, how can we make sense of them, and start to medicalizing transgender expressions. And so that runs parallel and gen for, a long, for, for a certain amount of time. And then the gender uh, money's uh, introduction of gender and gender role actually gives uh, eventually in the 60s uh, researchers, psychologists to work on trans a tool to uh, separate sex and gender, to introduce gender identity, and then formulate a medicalized version of what they call at the time transsexuality. Well, how did that spread happen? How did this new notion of gender spread beyond the pediatric endocrinology clinic at Johns Hopkins, both to the U.S. at large and then around the world. So in my book, I was really interested to follow, as I say, gender beyond the clinic and see uh, how gender uh, travels to different, uh, different sites and discipline and spaces and eventually leaves the clinic. And so one aspect is, and I haven't mentioned it yet, but it's really important that as gender is introduced uh, into the treatment of patients, of young uh, children with intersex uh, traits, it creates this new treatment regime that argues, well, if gender role is learned, you can assign any sex, um, but you have to sign one sex. It needs to be either one, and then you need to raise the child really strictly in their gender role so that they become healthy, well-adjusted adults. And for that, it's really important that the body, uh, the external, the appearance of the child, and especially the child's genitals, fit uh, the assigned uh, sex and the gender roles that follows. And this leads to a whole regime of treatment recommendations where, uh, which is called the intersex case management, optimum uh, gender of rearing, uh, where um, a sex is assigned to the child based on whether the genitals of the child can be fixed uh, surgically and adjusted to the assigned sex. This leads to very... Um, dramatic and non-consensual uh, early genital interventions on a child, partly because the team at Hopkins claims that gender is um, 
learned in the first years of life, the gender role is learned in the first years of life, and then becomes imprinted in a way that is not changeable. Afterwards, it's indelible. And so you have to really be consistent. And they really recommend a regime of very invasive and traumatic uh, genital surgery. And that part of the gender concept travels really well because it's this kind of standardized treatment protocol uh, that clinicians all over the country and internationally take up really quickly, uh, take up to um, take up and um, follow it through uh, until the 1990s, unchallenged when um, an intersex emerging intersex uh, patient movement finally gets to question uh, loudly these uh, these non-consensual surgeries at an early age that not only scar children and deprive them of future sexual possibilities, but also deprive them of the opportunity to switch uh, their, um, their, their gender, to switch their sex, their assigned sex, their sex that they have been assigned at birth. So the interesting thing is this treatment protocol travels really well, but not necessarily always attached to money's gender theory. So that kind of like falls, like people ignore it, especially with kind of this move back to biology in the 1970s. It falls and it's, but the, but the, the protocols um, uh, work really well for clinicians and are not questions. So then gender itself travels into psychology, is taken up by psychologists, uh, people such as Robert uh, uh, Stoller, who adds gender identity to uh, sex and gender role, and uh, which gives him um, a bigger range to describe uh, the ways in which people embrace gender, right? Even because he has gender identity as the innermost expression and gender role as kind of the performative part of gender, he can say, well, it gives you more, more variance. You can say, I'm a, I'm a man, but I'm not a very masculine man. So that's his intervention that opens it up to the newly emerging gender identity clinics uh, in the late 60s and 1970s, where uh, gender identity becomes an important uh, uh, feature, uh, not only of the names, uh, but also of the name of, the, of these clinics, but also of the ways in which people are treated and in a way, medicalized. The interesting thing is also that gender goes beyond the clinic. And I think this is one of the parts of my research that really, really intrigued me. So what happens? Why do we suddenly start about talking about gender, right? Why, why is this, do people, how does this term that is so ubiquitous today, we all talk about gender, we have gender reveal parties, we have, you know, uh, gender mainstreaming, gender unicorns, we have all kinds of ways that we talk about gender that don't quite match often onto each other. Uh, it means slightly different thing. And I was really intrigued at the end of the book to really think about how does that happen? How do can we look at the way people pick up uh, gender in the early 1970s. And one aspect I paid specific attention to is how, how does gender travel into feminism in the late 60s and early 1970s. So feminist and feminist activists uh, who are active in the women's liberation movement had, of course, challenged sex roles for a long time. Uh, and even feminist academics didn't really need gender to make the argument. Let's not forget that uh, Simone de Beauvoir wrote a whole book about um, 
how one becomes a woman, where she engages with biological theories of sex, where she didn't need the term gender to make uh, her point. But uh, one of the things that happen is once gender starts circulating, and especially with the prominence of newly emerging gender identity clinics, feminists pay attention because the idea that gender is learned uh, uh, holds a lot of power, and especially because it's backed up by the clin clinical data, the sheer numbers uh, that um, Hopkins seems to offer, right? The authority of medicine to actually say, here's a medical, uh, biomedical scientific side where we can talk about that actually says gender is learned. Uh, however, feminists also noted at the very same moment that you know the the gender role that comes to them, uh, the idea of gender that comes emerges from the clinic is highly normative. And from the very beginning, they criticize the normative nerds and this kind of like destiny of gender, this way in which gender, because of the specific formulation of the clinic, becomes this very um, kind of static term in a way the body becomes more fluid and more changeable, more malleable than gender. gender is, if gender is as the claim fixed, then you cannot change it. So feminists say, well, we think if gender is learned, you can also unlearn it. And so they take gender and flip it on its head. They say, well, you know, uh, if, if, that's, if that's what you're saying, we can unlearn gender and then can, and we can disentangle it. We can disentangle it from masculinity and femininity. And all these categories, these norms that you ascribe to gender can be taken apart. So a girl can be boisterous and can be wild and can um, uh, become a mechanic and love other girls. So all these things uh, are quite opposite to the way in which this normative way in which gender is formulated in the clinic. And the final way I think that's really interesting how gender travels is how it's picked up in kind of the daily language of communities. So I noticed in my research that in publications um, of queer communities, uh, alternative communities, that gender slips between the lines, that it's used very differently and in different ways, sometimes to replace sex and sex roles, sometimes very specifically to refer to gender identity clinics, but sometimes also it's appropriated by queer communities. So very early on in the 1970s, queer communities make gender their own. They say they come up with new terms uh, to think about and talk about disrupting gender, disrupting, mixing different gender signal, taking it apart and making it something new, creating new gender formations. And that was one part I was found really fascinating so early on how this word that comes out of the clinic with this very normative burden is taken apart, travels in these new spaces, is appropriated and readjusted and made into something that's much closer to our modern understanding of gender than probably the clinical formulation is. Sandra Eder is my guest. She's Associate Professor of History at UC Berkeley, and we're talking about her book, How the Clinic Made Gender, The Medical History, of a transformative idea. This is Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Well, if you were to look back from the present now, how much do you think are the prevailing notion of gender today, not that it's not battled over still, 
But how much do you think it owes to the formulation of the idea of gender coming out of the Hopkins Pediatric Endocrinology Clinic in the 1940s? I'd like to say what happens at the Johns Hopkins Hospital in the 1950s is one formulation of gender, kind of the emergence of the sex-gender binary that uh, very much influences as some kind of a messy origin point the ways in which gender is talked about and transformed in uh, later iterations. So what I mean by that and what I try to say in my book is that gender is a dynamic category. It's very important to note its very normative origins in the clinic and to be very aware that that's a particular formulation that is taken into the medicalization of gender and the medicalization of uh, gender non-binary sex expressions, trans expressions of life. And I think that's an important factor. But it also tells us, I think, what we have to pay attention to is there are different formulations of gender as it leaves this clinic and is disseminated into different spaces. And one of the points I'm trying to make is that we're not always talking about the same thing when we talk about gender, right? And we can even see that, uh, I always give this example of the gender um, reveal party, which is not really a gender reveal party. It's a, you know, it's a reveal of a kind of a, a depiction of anatomical features of uh, a fetus. It doesn't really tell us about the gender of the person. And so it's, uh, it seems to be a polite way to say sex, but there are very many expressions in which we use gender that don't quite map onto each other. And the context and the politics and what people try to achieve and what's important uh, shape the ways in which we use and appropriate and understand gender today. And I think this is really important for the ways in which gender is yet again controversial and fought over in um, our current time. I wanted to ask you about race, which you mentioned earlier, and how whiteness has been connected to formulations, at least in the beginning, around the sex gender binary. Race plays a role in the story in uh, at least two different ways. So one is an archival problem, like uh, uh, an archival problem in which in this uh, discourse around, uh, in this debate around intersexuality and gender, and often uh, black people and people of color are written out of the archive, are not visible, we can't find the patients, and if they're involved, if they're present, in this clinical space, they're treated in a very stereotypical and problematic manner. So they're treated differently, but there's a lot of uh, research still to be done to see how these debates play out in other communities. Um, what also happens, I think, and uh, uh, what other scholars have argued is that there is a particular way in which that subject position these norms of the 1950s uh, concept of gender role at Hopkins is modeled on a specific white middle class uh, mainstream heteronormative understanding of humanity that excludes uh, particular groups. So even if often black people and people of color uh, enter the clinic and 
become part of the clinic than written out of these particular formulations of gender. It's really modeled on a norm and they don't, uh, they're, they're not included in this particular norm of what it means to be a human, what it means to be male and female, what it means to be uh, a well-adjusted, happy citizens. I'm Sasha Lilly. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Sandra Eder is my guest, author of How the Clinic Made Gender, the Medical History of a Transformative Idea, which is published by the University of Chicago Press at againstthegrain.org. You can find a link to that book. Sandra Eder teaches history at UC Berkeley and is co-editor of Pink and Blue, Gender, Culture, and the Health of Children. So Sandra, when you study the way that scientists, medical professionals in the past grappled with determining gender, you know, you're describing the shift that took place, particularly in uh, an identifiable spot in, at Johns Hopkins, where uh, clinicians shifted from identifying sex based on a number of different competing categories of anatomy to one of psychology and the social. I mean, obviously, one thing that stands out there is in their determining what would socially benefit the person, those children had no say in the process, or as you kind of alluded to, not only to choose their gender, but to decide not to choose a single gender in the first place. What can you say about the broader politics around scientific metrics for determining the social or psychological well-being of people and their needs and what might be best for them. Psychology sounds better in many ways than some kind of biologically determined medicine. At the same time, psychology has its own complicated history and, and complicated baggage. That is a really big question, and uh, from my perspective and from my research, what what I note and what I noted is, and what actually drew me to this project in the first place, is this contradiction between thinking something is psychological and learned, and this kind of feeling that we have very intuitively that this is more liberating, this give, is giving us more space, and uh, the realization that these psychological series, the series were based on uh, development of um, personality characteristics of psychology, psychology are framed in the same way by the society and by the context and the norms they live in as other, um, uh, as is uh, as our scientific and biological approaches to personality and you know, humanity, being a human in a way. So it is not uh, more liberating because it's formulated through the same rhythm and it's formulated so uh, how we live and how we understand uh, who counts as a human being. And we can see that maybe even more clearly in kind of the emergence of sexology in studying of human sexual variations or as they called deviations of human sexuality. And so the impulse of psychiatric and psychological 
um, approaches to human sexuality was in a way kind of liberal humanitarian to think about you know understanding uh, um, human sexuality many of these uh, medical men who did that initially were thought of themselves as reformers who kind of putting the clear um, view of science uh, onto individuals but it turned out in the end that it was as pathologizing and as normative as had been earlier models because it's always formulated from a norm it's always formulated this this kind of um, uh, sexualities that are seen as deviant are always used to uh, define our norm of heterosexuality and so in a way that there was no escape from the system they per se like that and we can see that with 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 the gender example as well so money as a psychologist actually thinks of himself as a reformer he's a very problematic figure in the story but he thinks in this kind of 1950s young john money formulation he thinks of himself as somebody who's uh pulling this patience with intersex trade into the light of science. He's taking kind of severe, severing this uh, old connection where these patients are um, uh, seen as quote unquote freaks or as problematic, as monsters. He says like, no, this is just a, a variation. We have a scientific answer and we have a psychological answer and we just need to speak clearly and openly about um, about what's happening here, we need to explain to parents that they're not uh, that they're not wrong. They're just unfinished, and we're helping to finish their development. And we need to explain how they can uh, become uh, uh, male and female, and speak openly about sexuality and reproduction. And give them all these options and how to develop. So it sounds really good, right? He thinks he's really moving them away from prejudice, but the way in which uh, he describes these um, kind of open conversations about sexuality are very much shaped by his current understanding of uh, what a man is and what a woman is and what female, uh, what fem femininity and masculinity is. It's very shaped by his idea women's roles uh, is to become mothers. So you have to explain to uh, some of the children that they can become mothers through other means through adoption or you have to explain that you have to build a child uh, you have to do this invasive surgery or had to do it because you have to build uh he calls this a, a baby a baby channel for for vagina so there's all these ideas that kind of uh um permeate this so-called kind of psychological language in which they are um they're talking to the children. And that's, of course, because for psychologists and psychiatrists, this clear division of sex uh, of male and female is really important in their understanding of development. So it's not surprising that they do that, but it's not necessarily a space that allows for a broader expression of, uh, of gender nor humanity, if that answers your question. It does indeed. Sandra Eder, thank you so much. Thank you. It was my pleasure being here. Sandra Eder is a historian. She teaches at UC Berkeley. We've been discussing her book, How the Clinic Made Gender, The Medical History of a Transformative Idea. That's published by the University of Chicago Press and at Against the Grain. You can find a link to that book. She's also the co-editor of Pink and Blue, Gender, Culture, and the Health of Children. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune in again next time.
Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. Please visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio and a way to sign up for our podcast. And you can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio or follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. 